Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, we are welcoming back Todd Vaught today to the Common Ground Unity Podcast. He is the Executive Director of Mission Alive, a missional church planting ministry with a focus on starting new innovative churches in marginalized communities. Mission Alive has been a sponsor of Common Grounds Unity. You can learn more about Mission Alive and uh, the work that Todd's involved in at missionalive.org. Todd's an author. He's an elder, spiritual director, a certified coach. He and Candace live in McKinney, Texas. Uh, So we want to welcome you back, Todd. Uh, Also, I want to mention to our listeners Uh, Todd's been a guest before, so if you want to learn a little bit more about his work in Mission Alive specifically, not only can you go to the website I mentioned, but you can also refer back to episodes 87 and 88 of our podcast. So, Todd, welcome back. How's your work going and how's life? Well, thank you for having me back. This is fun. Um, You know, life is good. Work is good. God's doing some great stuff. Um, so uh, I, I live better than I should, and I'm blessed in all kinds of ways. So, uh, Amen. I think yeah. that's true of all of us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, really- we're, we're thankful for your partnership with us in this podcast and in these conversations. We're in a series on healthy church, and we've asked Todd to come on. We're going to be talking about learning from the early church. Uh, So, Todd, I'm going to kick us off with a question. You know, restoration movements such as the Stone-Campbell movement are known for patterning doctrine and practice after their particular view of the first century or early church. And and in this episode today, we want to ask what the early church can teach us about healthy churches. So could you talk about how the question we're asking today is different from how we have traditionally studied and approached the early church? Yeah, that's it's a really interesting question. You know, at the time that the Stone Campbell movement was sort of consolidating, Western culture was fascinated with, preoccupied with kind of governmental systems. Um, Europe had been transitioning from monarchies to various forms of democracy for the previous, well, give it 150 years or something like that. And so consequently, churches were preoccupied with questions of governance and church life, just like the larger culture was. And as a result, that patterning that uh, they went to Scripture to look for was to some degree, probably a fairly large degree, focused on church organization and leadership, governance concerns, things like that. The Stone-Campbell movement was not, by a long shot, the only group focused on finding patterns. I mean, that that, uh, the idea of finding patterns in Scripture was very common back 150, 200 years ago. 
um, the tr- for example, like the traditional five acts of worship or five steps of salvation. I mean, these are attempts to find patterns to organize what happens when the body gathers or to organize a process of salvation. Uh, the the influence of the scientific method was being felt in all aspects of life. And so we started looking for those types of, of patterns. Um, but you asked how the, que- how the question we're asking is different now, 200 years later, Western democracy, social democracies, fairly well established in Western culture. And as I look around, the nature of Western Christianity, no matter what organizational pattern it embodies, does not reflect the ethical postures taken by the early church. So what the Stone Campbell movement was not doing was looking for patterns of ethics. They were looking for patterns of how to do church. And I think in doing that, they missed uh, not so much patterns of ethics, but just the posture of being ethical people. Um, I think by and large, that question has been all but lost since about the time Constantine legalized Christianity. So we have a lot to learn, I think, from our early ancestors who lived in the presence of tremendous resistance and disdain for the Christian faith. Uh, in fact, I think we have more to learn from them than perhaps we do from our uh, forebears in the Restoration Movement. Tell me a little bit, Todd, why, why do you suppose it was that there was such an emphasis on forms, governance, uh, patterns of worship, as opposed to that ethical life that God has called us to? What, why that well, heavy emphasis? I, I, think, I think the um, Enlightenment and uh, and particularly the growth of of the sciences, it systematized our thinking, which I think by and large has been very, very good. But it so systematized our thinking that we began to think that the life of something is in this is in the predictable system. And we stopped thinking about, um, you know, how do we live as ethical people in a world that is not ethical? Um, and so, yeah, we, we got preoccupied with what was preoccupying everybody else. And it just blinded us to, I think, other concerns. But it wasn't, it was, I mean, not just in the last two or 300 years. I mean, ethical concerns have not been a major conversation, certainly since the beginning of Protestantism. But you know, you can go back even into medieval, the medieval Catholic Church, and the there was moral concerns, but uh, that's a little different than ethical concerns. Uh, and so I don't know that the ethics of the people of God, the, being a peculiar kind of people within whatever culture they find themselves, I don't know that that's been a concern really since pre-Constantine. So three, you know, 350, let's just call it 350, you know, so. Uh, Looking back historically, the Roman empire and its culture were dramatically, if not radically transformed by the living Christ and his followers. Can you share with us what happened in the first few centuries that, that brought about this revolutionary change and maybe share why you think it happened? 
You know, um, so so this is what's got me focused on the early church right now, right? Um, this this dramatic, radical shift, this transformation of Roman culture. You know, I mean, I think it's nothing short of a miracle, right? What happened in, you know, from the time uh, post-apostles up until two or three hundred years after Constantine legalized the church, the change in Roman culture and Greek culture and all of the other smaller cultural groupings within the Mediterranean world, I mean, the transformation in those cultures was just nothing short of a miracle. I mean, within 300 years of the death of Jesus, um, maybe 400 if we stretch a little bit, both Greek and Roman cultures were utterly transformed, right? I mean, Rome went from a violent, hedonistic, domineering culture to one that was promoting the suffering servant. Uh, and and I don't think, I mean, I certainly was not taught as a young Christian that radical transformation and why it took place and what does that mean for me. Nobody ever taught me that. And when you realize how utterly pagan cruel, carnal Rome was, I mean, it's staggering to see how that culture became, you you know, began using the image of the cross on their buildings, you know, in such a short time. Um, So so you ask me how or why this happened. I've come to believe that whatever the early Christians believed, meaning whatever their theology and their doctrine was, they esteemed their neighbors, their people that they lived around so highly that they figuratively and literally laid down their lives for their neighbors, not just fellow Christians, uh, but their pagan neighbors. They did. I mean, uh, there's a story from about 313 BC in Caesarea of Syria, where a uh, the plague breaks out and all of the wealthy people that can, anybody that can has the financial means, they get out of the city, leaving all the poor people, all the people that are already sick. And the by and large, the Christians decided to stay and they nursed people and either buried them when they died or nursed them back to health. Uh, and many of the Christians died in the process. I mean, that is a step. If you, if you let yourself dive into that in your imagination, it's staggering to think that Christians would care for their pagan neighbor, neighbor to the point that it killed them, right? But when the plague was over and all of those people came back, what they found was some Christians and some family members that were there. And it was all because the Christians did that. That is an ethical posture in community, in society, that as far as I know, there's nothing that compares to that in today's world. But uh, given the world we live in, I think if Christians adopted a similar kind of ethical presence in their community, it would go a long way uh, to kind of reclaiming the presence of Christ in the world and the image of Christianity, which has been pretty, pretty well tarnished. Um, so, um, you know, there's another story about, uh, about this column, this, uh, like marble column in Rome called the lactation column for, I mean, it 
so difficult translation, but lactation column, um, where Romans would bring their infants. And, and if they didn't want an infant for whatever reason, they would just come and leave it at that column to die of either exposure or, you know, uh, starvation or something like that. And occasionally wet nurses would go by and nurse some of those children, but none, you know, they couldn't take care of all of those children. And occasionally Christians would go by and pick up those children and raise them as their own. Um, you know, th that kind of care and concern for uh, unbelieving, the children of unbelieving people, um, we don't see anything like that in our society. And I think, I think that's what we have to learn from our early Christian ancestors from that early church is not so much their doctrine, but their ethics, right? The ethics by which that caused them to do something like that. Uh, I think that's fairly staggering. And I think we still have something to learn. Well, that, that is an amazing story. And we still see the fruit of that in that, you know, the whole modern medicine, hospitals, right. you know, that, that have their origins back in Christians' care and, and seeing a, a, a sanctity to human life yep. uh, and caring for the sick. And the same for orphanages and orphan care. So we still see vestiges of that. We see fruit of that. And it's just an amazing testimony to the power of lives that have been transformed by this suffering servant, Christ, who gave himself up for others. And, yeah. uh, the, the very first mental health institution was a house bought by a rich Christian woman for the care of people with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, how they processed all that, we call it mental health. They processed it different, but that's what it was. It was a house. It was in Spain and she bought it specifically to care for people with mental health issues. Um, all kinds of prison reform find their roots in Christianity um, and, and some of those stories are just astounding things we take absolutely for granted without Christ. They're not to be taken for granted, like separating men and women in a prison. That's a Christian thing, you know, and uh, it's hard to wrap our minds around what would a prison in say the three hundreds be like when men and women are kept together. Talk about a brutal, violent place to be, you know, so well, you know, there's, as you say all of that, there's a great apologetic in that because, you know, historically um, the church has transformed society and often the church is accused of having made society worse rather than better. And yet there's a challenge in that too, isn't there? I, I mean, that, that's, that's our roots and we so move away from uh, such service and life-changing uh, sacrifice and and power often becomes what we're more involved with. They did that without political power. They did that without, right. you know, the strength of uh, institutional dominance. And and it tells you something about what they believed to be important about this Christian faith of ours. Uh, what they believed to be important was clearly quite different than the things that preoccupy us. And so that's why I, that's why this is sort of the focus of my own kind of devotional life right now. My what I'm reading is because I really believe these people have something to teach us about what the, the nature of this uh, podcast. What does a healthy church look like? Well, mm -hmm. 
I think there's some something that needs to be reclaimed here if we're going to live as spiritually healthy people in the 21st century. So, well, it didn't take long after Christianity became the dominant religion within the Roman world. There was this other major shift that occurred when the church eventually moved from being this compassionate, self-sacrificial group of humans living for the sake of their neighbor uh, toward institutional authority, power dynamics, and the pursuit of correct doctrine and practice. Talk a little bit about what happened during that transition, if you will. So it's, it's important to note that while the Roman Empire officially embraced Christianity, um, certainly the, the political and military powers were less, less moved by the gospel and more motivated to co-opt Christianity as a means of social control, right? And um, it, it hasn't been any different throughout history. So often Christianity, particularly as we look through uh, the European experience of Christianity, so often the uh, political military powers kind of have co-opted Christianity for their purposes to align or to invite Christians to also be loyal to some political or military power. Uh, I mean, this would be true. We can find examples of this in medieval Europe and Renaissance Europe, certainly in the United States. Christianity in the U.S. has been for 200 years now kind of co-opted at various times by different political parties or political leaders to persuade Christians to align themselves with that particular side or the other. Um, so it's nothing new, right, that, that this would happen. Um, as this has happened over 500 years or so, or at least the first 500 years after Constantine legalized Christianity and the faith uh, became about going to church instead of being this peculiar presence within the community. And, and I think that's essentially it started then and we're still there. Um, uh, but that's not how Christianity started. It started as some kind of odd group of people that lived a higher life than everybody else. And it, initially people took offense at it and eventually they began to realize, you know, this is, this is a better way of living. And that's what gave them the access to people to speak of Jesus was the, the ethical way that they lived within the community. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess from my perspective as a, as a leader of a church planting ministry, uh, that's certainly at the core of what we're trying to do with new churches is train them how to live for the sake of the community as the way of gaining access to people's hearts and minds. So. Well, if I may, uh, let me ask you a little bit about examples of how you have seen that that teaching, maybe training with some of these groups, how you've seen that be put into practice and, and where you've seen it bear fruit. You know, one of our newest church plants right now actually got started kind of doing social justice type work just as a non-social Christian nonprofit. And then came to Mission Alive and said, okay, we've got this nonprofit going, but we would really like to 
kind of start a church alongside this or, or as an expression of this. And so this particular, it's a very new work that we're, that we're working with right now, but they've got anywhere uh, kind of insiders. They've probably got 30 or 40 insiders. They've only been going a few months, but um, they're ministering to several hundred people within their community. And as part of that, they've pulled some homeless people off the street and got them, got them put into a, um, uh, into an old hotel that was uh, kind of donated for the purpose of of helping homeless folks get off the street. And so I think in very practical terms, the church, in, you, you know, I, I see articles and I see, hear people discussing, you know, is social justice, you know, is that a Christian concern? I want to say, absolutely. Absolutely. It should be. We should be the ones that are on the front end of that defining. The, it used to be that Christians actually defined what it meant to, to be concerned with social justice. Right. We were the guys doing it. And then it's kind of been co-opted by other people. But, um, yeah, Christians should be the ones in any community that are setting the agenda for caring for the marginalized and the poor and the, you know, those with no voice in the culture, Christians ought to be the ones helping those folks. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to do with our church plans. So as you kind of look at the 20th and 21st century church, let's move this forward. Uh, do you see parallels or similarities to the early church? What, what should we be aware of and what lessons could lead us to forming healthier churches? So, um, yeah, I think in particular, I see a parallel kind of between the second, third century church or the latter first century, second and third century church with more like late 20th century, early, you know, the early 21st century church. Now, that perspective is not at all original with me. There have been a lot of writers over, say, the last two generations or so that have been making some uh, claims like we share a lot in association with the second and third century church in which Christianity no longer holds the cultural center, right? We don't have access to the apostles anymore, but we don't hold the cultural center. We, We can't claim any kind of authority or dominant uh, dominance within the larger culture. So um, that's why I'm focused on this kind of more of an ethical posture of the early church, because whatever they believed, they lived sacrificially at that time, right? At that time where they didn't have cultural power, they didn't have access to the apostles, whatever they knew of Jesus led them to live this kind of self-sacrificial way of the cross. And so here in the 21st century, I'd say we need to pay attention to that. And I think there's probably, as I just described about the the hotel for homeless people and things like that, there are some very, very specific 21st century versions of that that we can discover in our communities where Christians can step up. So, for example, I mean, one thing I'm asking our church planners to do in the first year, I want them to uh, meet a thousand people and interview about 150 of them and find what are the areas of brokenness within the community and not just the obvious ones, right? Like, you know, 
poverty, drugs, crime, you know, those are the obvious ones. But most of those are too big for an individual church to tackle. But what about the third grade reading level in your local school? What about helping raise that? Because third grade reading level is known to be a predictor of educational success. So could a small church help raise the third grade reading level? Absolutely. Right. In 2015 to 2017, what the, the organization that no longer exists called Leadership Network, they did a um, kind of a test. They ran an experiment in Jacksonville, Florida, to see if a church using big data could identify people whose marriages were um, at risk of divorce. And by intersecting with them before they got divorced, could they lower the divorce rate? And you can go Google this. There are articles that came out of Jacksonville, Florida at the time. And like they lowered the divorce rate by like 30 or 40% in a matter of two or three or four years. One church, now it was a mega church, but it was one church in one community that used data to go find people whose marriages were statistically or as far as data was concerned, uh, ripe for divorce. And they engaged those families and they lowered the divorce rate. Maybe it was uh, maybe it was just chance, but I tend to think it was because Christians decided they wanted to make an impact. So, be able to find a hurt and and help heal it. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's uh, it's an old story, but it's new again. <laughs> Absolutely, building relationships with uh, with elementary schools in low income areas. Um, probably no end to the, the needs you might discover there within that community. That's right. And you don't have to take on, I, I love what you said there, you know, a mega church did this and some things are beyond a small church, especially a startup, but you start somewhere. Right. And, and exactly. Uh, that's it's the whole idea of throwing the, uh, the um, starfish back in the water, right? There's thousands of starfish and you yes. pick one up. Why'd you throw it back in? Oh, I saved them. Well, you can't save all these. I saved that one. You know, that's right. That's you can't right. save everything, but do something for goodness sake. Mm. Um, and, you know, and always in the name of Jesus, out of our heart and compassion that has been given to us by God. So yeah, that's a great call. As we think about the the biblical narrative, there seems to be a pattern of God's people wanting a king and then suffering the consequences of that choice. Your nonprofit Mission Alive, quote, in uh, in its mission, equips leaders to develop innovative communities of faith focused on transforming marginalized communities. What do you see as the call of the hour for leadership in the church today? And, uh, and how can we better equip leaders to advance the gospel as Jesus intends for us to? Um, I think the um, call of the hour for leadership is Philippians 2. Uh, in Mission Alive, we talk quite extensively about what we call canonic leadership, where in Philippians 2, it says, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's the Greek word kenosis, by taking on the very nature of a servant. Uh, Jesus himself, God himself in Christ, not only became a human being, but became a 
human being at the low end of the spectrum. Jesus didn't use his own power for his own sake, but for the good of others. That's kingdom leadership. Um, to accept any spiritual leadership that is not at least trying to model canonic leadership is to invite self-serving power-oriented leaders. It's no surprise that we've seen them and got them, right? Uh, history tells us that it never goes well for the followers when we follow power-oriented leaders. Um, so uh, as far as uh, equipping leaders, we need a much greater focus on character formation than we've had in a really long time. Uh, for at least the past 500 years of Protestantism, leadership for development has focused mostly on doctrinal formation and secondarily on moral formation. With almost nothing on character formation, we wonder why we end up with leaders who are drunk on power, money, and sex, right? Um, and I, I hope I'm not putting too fine a point. There are some absolutely fantastic leaders in the church. Uh, but they're almost never the ones that get the spotlight, right? The, the really fantastic Jesus-looking leaders are, are rarely in the spotlight. Um, and I would say if we are going to focus on anything in terms of developing the next generation or two or three or four or five of leaders, it's we need to, we need to readdress character formation. Mm. So. Mm. So, so Todd, how, how does all of this help us better become more unified as the body of Christ? You know, we're on this podcast concerned about helping each of us to be a part of the answer of that prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 for unity. Um, so, so how does all this contribute toward that? And how do you have a vision of how we can better live out this prayer of Jesus as we move forward uh, in, in the church and in mission. I think unity is what you get when people are living canonically. Um, when we are more focused on helping other people than we are on the nuances of correct doctrine, don't get me wrong. I don't, I, please don't everybody email me or text me and say, you don't think doctrine's important. I, it's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that we have been so fixated to the exclusion or minimization of character formation. Um, and we have made doctrine more important than unity. Um, like, like, I can't tell you over the years how many people have told me they're very interested in unity, provided they agree with me on doctrine. I'm like, you miss the point, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think frankly, um, the table, the, the, the Eucharist, the communion, um, it should be the place where every Sunday we are reminded that in spite of all of our differences, we sit at the same table, right? I mean... I don't know. It took me uh, a number of decades before I realized uh, Levi, the tax collector, was sitting at the same table with Judas, uh, with um, Simon the Zealot, right? So you got Simon the Zealot committed to kill Romans and Roman collaborators and Levi, the tax collector, a Roman collaborator, sitting at the same table. 
How did that happen? Those guys should they were they couldn't be more you know farther apart politically, socially, but they sat at the same table. And I think it's this this idea of kenosis. Let me pour myself out for the sake of other people. Let me lay down my agenda for the sake of other people. It's when we re-embrace a canonic view of our Christian faith, both in leadership and among regular Christians, that the unity that Jesus calls for in John 17 becomes becomes more realistic, becomes more possible, I think. So and in Mission Alive, that's I mean, we talk about that. We we Mission Alive in its very nature. We we are not an organization, we're not a ministry that is defined by a particular set of doctrines. Uh, there is not a certain um, you know, statement, there's not a whole series of statement of faith that somebody has to sign off on in order for us to help them plant a church because that's not how Jesus operated. Right. Um, it's, that's not to say that I don't have my own personal convictions. I absolutely do. It's just that I'm not the Pope of Mission Alive. Right. And, um, I don't think anybody should be. Uh, I think, uh, my job is to train leaders to follow Jesus as best as they can, not as best as I can. So I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but absolutely, you know. and it and it may come down to as well you know, how we think of doctrine. You know, I, you're you probably had experiences like I did in my earlier years, where doctrine was often uh, making points that had to do with form, that had to do with you know, proper government, proper uh, patterns for, for worship. You know, when we'd look at the table, you, you just kind of cast a vision of going back to the table as a place where, you know, Jesus is at the center and he's drawn such disparate people together who would never have come together by any yeah. other means, but that's right. Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and, and what that's meant. And we've spent so much time talking about communion's frequency when it's appropriate to partake. Right. And, you know, how the element should be taken. You know, doctrine is much richer and deeper. And we use that term pattern earlier. Uh, we've, we've sometimes been so caught up with the patterns being forms of practice. And it seems that Jesus is the pattern that, you know, the, you're getting at that. The leadership based on Philippians 2 is not a list of qualities, but it's looking at the person of Christ. And how do we emulate that? Yeah. So I love what you've said. Yeah, you know, um, the Stone Campbell tradition isn't even close to the only one that has missed it, right? Like, I think by and large, Protestantism got preoccupied. I mean, there's a, we, I could wax uh, on about this and get all nerdy, get my nerdy, you know, history, <laughs> historian kind of thing going. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that happened. But um, I think when it, the day is said and done um, in today's world, like I think in the second and third century, if we are going to have a voice, if we are going to have any credibility whatsoever, it's going to come out of the way we live, not by what we say. So it's not the doctrine isn't important. It's just in today's world, it cannot play. It can't be the first thing we go to. Uh, we need to build some credibility by living canonically, by living the way of the cross in, in our neighborhoods. You know.
What's what's exciting you with Mission Alive right now, and what are you seeing on the horizon with your your work there? You know, um, recently I have been approached by a couple of people that are interested in working with Mission Alive to plant churches, and um, they, you know, one of them um, has been convicted of murder. Mm. Um, you know, that will be a first for Mission Alive. I can assure you, if we if we go that direction. I'm inclined to think that we will, but we've got a whole process we got to work through. But the very fact that we have the opportunity to have that conversation excites me to no end. Um, so uh, that excites me. I, what I was describing earlier about this work with the the homeless, moving the homeless into this uh, into this hotel, that kind of work excites me. We've got a discipleship. Um, ministry developing in Abilene, Texas, of all places, where there's this multiplying of disciples. Um, that excites me. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really fun right now. We've got a lot of cool things going on. Exciting stuff. A lot of stuff for us to pray for. Um, Todd, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Anything that comes to mind that you'd like for our listeners to hear about? Nothing immediately comes to mind, no. Um, I don't know if there's any other, I don't know. No, nothing comes to mind. That's fine. That's fine. I just always want to give you an opening. Um, You've been a blessing to our podcast. I've enjoyed our previous conversations and then this one as well. And I want to say again, before we get it, we're going to have a little fun in just a moment with a lightning round. Will you stick around for that? And oh, yeah, of course, like for yeah. our listeners to get to know you a little bit better that way. But want to remind our listeners, you can learn more about Mission Alive at missionalive.org. Um, Todd, thanks for sharing. You know, you we, we often think of you in terms of your work being on mission, missional living, getting into marginalized communities. But to kind of bring you on and tap your, uh, your historian side has been a lot of fun and interesting. And yeah, challenging. I'm a nerd that way, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we need nerds like that. We, we yeah. get informed and better educated that way. And you've, I think, inspired some thoughts for people about you know, when we think of going back to that early church and restoration. Let's restore the life of that church, mm-hmm. the love of that church, the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to do a little lightning round, shift gears here. Um, and, and so This kind of scares gonna, me, by the way. <laughs> I'll try not to throw, you know, too big a hardballs at you. I think you'll have fun with these. Um, let's start out. What is your go-to spot for coffee or a beverage with a friend? Well, of course, it depends on the beverage. Um, for coffee, I've got a little uh, got a little coffee shop here not too far from my house called Duino's. So uh, they've got an, a, a really nice little Italian style coffee shop. It's, it's great. So that's, if anybody's close to me, that's where I go. Uh, so, yeah. Duino's that, now that sounds interesting. You've intrigued me there. If I'm in that part of the country, I want to join you there. Okay. What is your, what is your go-to pastime? You know, um, probably in a normal kind of rhythm, it's reading. Um, but, when I get a chance, I love, you know, walk, reading and walking probably. But when I get a chance, I love to go to the outdoors. I love nature. I love hiking. I love camping. I love um, fishing, kayaking. I've got a couple of kayaks. I, I, I don't get out on them nearly enough, but I, uh, I love that. I, 
I just connect with God in those kinds of ways. So anytime I can get to uh, mountains or rivers or the ocean, you know, um, yeah, it, my blood pressure goes down pretty quickly. Oh, good stuff. I hope you get to do some of that soon. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh gosh. (laughs) Um, you know, when I was in Africa, I prayed for tongues because learning the language was hard. So maybe, maybe if I could have the superpower of speaking any language, that would be. Oh really cool. man, that'd, that'd be a really blessing, cool. wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be very useful. Because I'm I'm not the greatest uh, language learner. So, are you a sports fan? If, and yeah. if so, who's your most respected uh, sports personality, or maybe a few? Oh, oh man. How far back can I go? I mean, you can go when back I was as kid, far I, as you'd I, like. I watched Hank Aaron play. Um, mm. That was fantastic. What a what a cool memory I have of seeing Hank Aaron play. Jackie Robinson, of course, even before him. Um, you know that movie about Jackie Robinson was so disturbing and impressive all at the same time. Uh, so just for a guy to, well, I mean. Jackie Robinson behaved canonically on behalf of African-Americans, mm. right? He, he absorbed the pain and the difficulty to pave the way for other people. I just, I just love that, you know? Oh, I agree. And of yeah. course we got all kinds of others, right? If we come more current, like Kobe Bryant, impressive Peyton Manning. I mean, mm. he's impressive. Even, even really right now, I think Stephen Curry is, a, is an amazing, yeah. uh, I think he is, he is a great role model for young, for young people. So, yeah. Hey, you've taken us through a couple of sports eras, basketball, baseball, football. Um, what's a recent book that you've really appreciated, really enjoyed? So um, I, I've been a part of a Friday morning men's group that we meet on zoom every Friday morning, been doing it since 2018 and earlier this year, uh, one of our guys wanted us to read uh, Greg Boyd's book, Benefit of the Doubt. I don't know if you guys know this book. Um, I, I think it ought to be um, required reading for any 21st century Christian. I mean, particularly if you're evangelical Protestant, right? It is fantastic. Now, Greg Boyd being Greg Boyd, he's going to punch a bunch of your buttons. And so you got to be ready for that. <laughs> um, so in fact, we had Greg Boyd join us for one of our, our mornings and oh, it was wow. great to get to visit with, with Greg about that. Um, so that would be one of the more recent books. Um, but I have a couple of books that I read over and over again. One of those is called Testament of Devotion by Thomas Kelly. I'm kind of a, again, I got a little bit of a nerd in me, but um, it's uh, Quaker spirituality. And uh, man, I find I find kind of quietly hidden little missional perspectives in this uh, Quaker book from about 80 years ago, <laughs> you know, so Testament of Devotion by Thomas Kelly. I, I read it over and over. So. All right. This one's a little bit lighter, given a choice, a night out or a night in. And, oh, a night what, out. what would you do with either? Okay. What do you, what do you enjoy on a night out? You know, um, the older I get, the less I care what we're doing, you know, but I mean, like we like concerts, we like 
live music. Uh, we like good food. We like uh, we like various kinds of entertainment. Sometimes uh, theater or uh, or concerts of various kinds. Uh, my wife and I both love classical music. We like jazz. We've got a, a local jazz club here that we occasionally go to. So, yeah, um, night out and hang out with my wife and and have a great time. We love to take people with, with us. In fact, we've got a uh, we've got a vineyard not far from here. And when you know during the nicer months of the year, um, they will have live music every weekend and you come and set up your lawn chair, listen to music and drink wine. So how, how bad can life be? Right. Oh, that's I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Night out, all the things you described and with my wife, her alone, that's terrific. And then in with others. So Todd, that's great. We, we have sure enjoyed having you on the podcast again. Again, we thank you for our, uh, our friendship, your, your, fellowship with us in this i and, love what uh, you guys do oh thank I you i love it well our prayers for your blessings as you continue to work with mission alive and your other endeavors in the kingdom we're going to close things out now we have a, a vision as our listeners know to create and support gatherings of unity-minded christians around the globe imagine the good news of these gatherings modeling the prayer of jesus in our divided world if we can help you to get one of those gatherings started in your community, with other believers in your area. We'd love to help you do that. Let us know how. Uh, You can come to our website and uh, chat with us there to learn more. Our website is commongroundsunity.org. And if you'd like to donate and bless this ministry financially, it does cost uh, to keep this mission moving forward, you might consider a monthly donation. And you can Make that at www.commongroundsunity.org front slash donate. Um, We look forward to you joining us again. We're going to be dropping another podcast in the next couple of weeks. So thank you for listening in. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.